going to ask you to stand one more time as we read today's uh, Scripture. Uh, I want to get us in the swing of standing in honor of the Word of God in our church uh, as an act of reverence, not as a religious uh, performance, not as a rote, routine, religious thing that we do, but out of a heartfelt reverence for the Word of God. We stand in honor of God's Word because it stands over our lives, and uh, His Word is to be uh, made supreme and preeminent in our lives. So, with that, Second uh, Corinthians chapter one, we are going to go. We're going to be looking at verses twelve to fourteen today. Verses twelve to fourteen, and this is what the Word of God says, beginning in verse twelve. For our proud confidence is this: the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom. But in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end, just as you, are partial, just as you partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do humbly bow in our hearts, Lord. We do humbly confess our great need of You today. Father, forbid that anybody here should have a sense of self-sufficiency or self-adequacy. God, we know that our sufficiency comes from You. We know that in You, as Scripture says, we are complete in Christ. And Father, I pray that You would complete us today as we look at Your Word, as we sit under Your precepts, as we observe wonderful things from Your law. God, change us, renew us, transform our minds because our minds are so quick to drift away from the standards of Your infallible Word. And so God, I pray that You would bless us with a glimpse of yet another aspect of the Apostle Paul's excellent ministry and what made him such a rock-solid minister of the gospel. I pray that there would be much for, us to, for all of us to learn here, whether a minister or not, that every believer here would benefit from Your Word and its instruction. And God, that we would uh, be the better equipped to, Father, enter into eternity fitted for heaven. God, we want our souls to be right. We want our conscience to be right. We want our hearts to be right before You. And so I pray, Father, use this text now. Breathe on Your Word. Speak to Your people. Minister to our hearts, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is this pastor, this sermon today is all about Paul's ministry and specifically looking at the integrity of Paul's ministry is what we're going to be looking at. He's going to give us, as you can tell here, different components of what made up an integrous ministry for the Apostle Paul. And really, there are two. And so that's going to be our focus today, just these two main headings of what made Paul's ministry so exemplary and so full of integrity. Uh, as, it, as it is. 
And it reminds me or it makes me think of the fact that God set the Apostle Paul as an exemplary minister for the church for all ages so that we can look to the Apostle Paul to know what it is that a minister is supposed to be, what he's supposed to be like, what his character is supposed to be like, and how we are to emulate him. Uh, As I was pouring over these verses and then just the greater context of this chapter, it really struck me that I have probably a dozen books in my library just on pastoral ministry, how you do it, what to avoid, what to do, how to do it right from all sorts of different perspectives and all sorts of different seasoned ministers and all sorts of different theologians. But it just struck me with the the inevitable reality that in the Apostle Paul, we have the greatest of all manuals on ministry. And oh, my friends, do not be deceived. As you pour over these texts, as a, as a would-be minister pours over these texts, you have in the words of the Apostle Paul something more powerful than the works of Baxter, more penetrating than the works of Bridges and his incredible manual on Christian ministry, more incredible insight and more powerful instruction and wisdom for the minister than any manual of ministry combined. The question is, is are you willing to put in the work? Are you willing to, to, to dig, right? Are you willing to get in deep into what Paul is talking about here so that you can glean these observations? As one pastor said, if you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get diamonds, So we want to dig a little bit today to try to get these diamonds out of Paul's ministry. Let's begin with the very first thing that he talks about here, and that is Paul's personal integrity in ministry. Look at verse 12. He says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. And I think when he uses the plural there, it's an editorial we. It's an epistolary we. It's a, it's a way of speaking. He's not necessarily representing him and anybody else as much as himself, but if this is the style or the way that he's writing here. We know that because he quickly transitions to the singular in a minute. But he says, "...the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the world." and especially toward you, Um, especially towards you. Well, you can see right from the start here that Paul is setting out to prove something about the conduct in his ministry. He is um, facing quite a challenge with the Corinthians, as we've noted already. The Corinthians have interpreted certain writings of Paul, certain letters that Paul has sent, and probably more specifically, the severe letter. I'll talk a little bit about that later but that Paul had given them certain instructions, that Paul had made certain comments, certain indications, wherein he sort of detailed what his plans were with the Corinthians, and because of certain circumstances and because of certain concerns, he has been forced to sort of change up his plans. And we'll see that further on and even in this chapter. But Paul's burden, therefore, is to prove to this this church that he is a man of integrity, that you can trust his word, that what he says is what he means, and what he says is what he's going to do. Though he may be subject to change or alteration, really, he's not going back on his words. And so here Paul is trying to prove his trustworthiness in the ministry. And above everything, probably the theme that dominates the whole book of 2 Corinthians 
is Paul's passion to substantiate his apostolic authority. Because you see, brothers and sisters, if this church moves away from Paul's apostolic authority, they move away from the gospel. And he doesn't want this church to move away from that apostolic tradition, that deposit that was entrusted by God to the apostles, by His grace to these apostles in order to minister the unsearchable, the unfathomable riches of Christ in the gospel. Moving away from Paul is moving away from the gospel. That's why Paul told the Galatians the same thing. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting the gospel. Then he goes into how they are going against the very things that he taught them. But look here at um, these different components, these different aspects of Paul's ministry. If you want to be a good minister, and if you want to have a good minister, these are the necessary components, at least a few of them. We know the qualifications there in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. But here we get a different aspect. This is coming right from the minister par excellence in the Scripture. And that is these three aspects that I've sort of zeroed in on here. Number one, notice that Paul had uh, a... Paul had a excuse me, the minister's conscience is the very first, that's the first item on the list, the minister's conscience. But I want to point out, even before we get to the conscience, I want you to see that he had an ambition to have a proud confidence. You see that? He says, for our proud confidence is this. See, Paul had an ambition in ministry. He had a goal. He wanted to have a certain level of ministry. He wanted to be able to stand in front of the church with a certain standard of confidence in front of the church. How many ministers, how many churches, how many pastors pastor in that way? They have an aim, they have a goal, they have an ambition, they're going somewhere. They have a standard to which they're trying to reach. There are no perfect ministers, and Paul isn't perfect either. There are no sinless ministers, and Paul is not sinless either. But one thing, is, to quote Paul, one thing he, Paul does is he does forget what lies behind, and he does press on to what is ahead. He's always going somewhere. That's what I love about Paul. He's relentless in his pursuit of excellence in the Christian life. He is relentless in his pursuit of holiness in the Christian life. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He is aiming at this confidence, this boasting, calcasis. He's, he's aiming to be in a position where he can boast. And I know that right away we think, well, isn't boasting bad, though? Aren't you supposed to kind of not boast in yourself? Well, that's not what it means here. This is talking not of boasting over gifting. This is not of boasting over talents or the influence of a person's ministry. But this is boasting in the grace of God, as he will go on to say. This is boasting, my friends, in what God does in him. This is boasting in a way that vindicates him against the accusations of wrongdoing. And in doing that, there is room to boast. But look at the very first thing. The minister's conscience is at the head of the list. He says, the testimony of our conscience. That word conscience is all important. Paul understood that to win the battle with the conscience was to win the battle everywhere else. If you don't win the battle inside, you won't win the battle outside. If you don't govern what goes into the mind, the conscience, and the soul of man, you will not govern what goes into his deeds, into his life, into his performance. 
This is an interesting word, conscience. It's actually made up of three components. It literally means to know yourself. Soon oida hemata. To know yourself is what Paul is saying. In other words, Paul had an obsession with ruling himself, with mastering himself, self-mastery. He wanted to master himself in the deepest part of his existence, of his being, of his makeup as a man, as a person, and as a minister, as a Christian. Brothers and sisters, Paul, again, is exemplary in this fashion. Not sinless, and so we don't want to communicate that. Paul, again, right, saw himself as what? The chief of sinners, if you'd ask him. He knew that it was wrong to covet because he saw God's law telling him not to covet. He had already trusted in himself in a way that God had to remove out of him. But he makes some amazing statements like this. Acts 23, verse 1. He tells the council there before the Jews, he says, Brethren, I've lived my life in a, with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Wow! A perfectly good conscience before God up to this very day. In other words, what Paul is saying, I have kept short accounts with God. That's not to say I've never sinned against God. It's to say whatever sin I've ever sinned, I dealt with it with God. I've done business with God so that my conscience is clear. My conscience is clear. Speaking of the maintenance of conscience, Acts 24, verse 16, he says, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before man. Amazing. He tells Timothy, I thank God who I serve with a clear conscience, just as my fathers did. See, for Paul, he understood that the conscience was a powerful inner judge of who he really is. The Puritans taught that the conscience is that invisible judge in the soul of man that stands before God and man or in between God and man, governing, judging, rendering judgments of who you really are. Isn't that amazing? Think of the conscience, how fascinating. Think of the conscience, the metaphysical aspect of the conscience. It is part of you, but at the same time, it is a part of you you can't control. You cannot shut conscience up. Conscience will always speak. You cannot put conscience down. Conscience will always rise to the top again. You cannot suppress conscience. It will always just reemerge stronger than ever. Conscience, in a sense, has its own consciences of mind. <laughs> conscience is God's grace in our lives, brothers and sisters. Conscience is given to us as a gift to govern our behavior. Conscience is given to us as a gift so that we do not live in unforgiveness, live in open or secret rebellion to God. Conscience is the inward testimony that God has placed in every man, bringing light to every man so that his own conscience will be the very thing that smites him on the day of judgment. It will be a witness that comes to the stand on the day of judgment, testifying to the very verdict that God renders on judgment day. Conscience is a powerful tonic for holiness. Conscience is a powerful tool for sanctification. Brothers and sisters, if we win the battle with the conscience, we will win the battle with the self. The self. Paul says that this conscience of his 
worked, we could say, if you look down at this very chapter, chapter 1, if you go down to verse 23, it worked in tandem with the testimony of God. The testimony of His conscience and the testimony of God. He says, but I call God as my witness to my soul that to spare you. And so this is spoken right in the context of making ministerial decisions. His conscience was clear. The decisions that he made in the ministry for the church, on behalf of the church, with the church. And likewise, because his conscience is good, because his conscience is clear, he can boldly call God himself as his witness. Isn't that amazing? Brothers and sisters, the conscience is, is, a, is an incredible tool that God has given us so that we can live our lives pleasing to Him, so that we can live lives that are according to His standards, according to His dictates, so that we can live authentic, genuine lives, so that we do not appear as actors on the day of judgment. Uh, George Whitfield said that what he wanted to, lo- to, to write on his tombstone when he died is, what do you want on your tombstone, George Whitfield? He said, I would like my tombstone to read this way. Here lies George Whitfield. We will see what sort of man he was on Judgment Day. Isn't that amazing? Paul knew that conscience would be the very thing that God will call into question, the very thing that God will use to convict us, Romans chapter 2, verse 15, to either accuse us or excuse us in our conduct. It's a powerful, powerful reality. But it's not just the internal aspect of the Apostle Paul that we need to appreciate. We also need to appreciate his character. That's the second thing. Not just the minister's conscience, but also the minister's character. He goes on to talk about his character when he says that in holiness and in godly sincerity, he goes on to say he conducted himself in such a way. It's an amazing thing that Paul puts the governing Greek verb at the very end of this verse, conduct or conduct oneself. He throws it at the end because he wants to emphasize that conduct. Well, this is what the conduct is made up of. It's made up of these various components. Really, there are two pairs of terms that Paul uses here. Look at the verse. The first pair is holiness and godly sincerity. The ESV says simplicity and sincerity. I will argue for the latter or the former rather, holiness And then the next set is this, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. You see that? So those two pairs of phrases coming together. First, this issue of holiness. Now there is, for those of you out there that have your Greek New Testament, there is a little bit of a textual variant here that needs to be dealt with because some of the manuscript evidence reads simplicity. It's the Greek word that sounds a lot like holiness, hagiateti. There's another one, haplateti. So you can see if a scribe is sitting there recording teti, he might get the, the, the beginning of the word wrong. Well, the external evidence that I've been able to study uh, with the tools of certain textual critics like Bruce Metzger to me suggests very strongly that the original reading was holiness, And the reason why some uh, have decided to use simplicity are for contextual reasons, stylistic reasons. And though what we have here with the word holiness for the Apostle Paul, it's the only place in the whole Bible where Paul uses the word holiness. It's what they call a hapax legomena for Paul. It's once used. Hapax means once, legomena means words. So one time he uses this word. 
in his writings. And I think it's right, because every other place where holy, or this word is used, or if the word simplicity is the original, where it's used elsewhere in the letter, it's not used anywhere near the same context. It's never used of Paul again. And so I think what he's getting at here is the moral purity of his character, not the single-mindedness of his character. In addition to that, for even maybe a stronger argument, is the next phrase, or the modifying phrase here, which he says, of God. And of God, you can make an argument, governs both phrases. That genitive might, might modify both of those terms, both holiness and sincerity of God. But it'd be difficult to, it'd be difficult to, to see the word simplicity of God there, what that exactly meant. So I think holiness is right. So that's what I'm going to run with. And that's what most commentators that I studied ran with. But first, the issue of holiness. Holiness is an amazing term because it's so broad, right? It covers so much ground, holiness. Holiness of character. Holiness speaks of, a, of moral character, moral purity. It speaks of walking in obedience to God's precepts, God's commands, God's law. This is what it means to be holy, it means to abstain from living a life of, pro, of the profane, of things unclean, of things impure, of things that are morally detestable, of things that are abominable. Holiness is the complete opposite of those things. Also, he uses the word sincerity, again, to highlight the moral quality of his character. And the word sincerity is another very interesting word because it literally is a compound word that means uh, tested by the sun or literally judged by the heat of the sun. It comes from the word helicrine uh, or helicrinea. And hele is where we get the word heliology, the study of the sun. And so in ancient times, they would take something like a clay vessel and they would test it against the light of the sun to see its purity or its integrity. I know that many of you have maybe done word studies and you found that to be true. So that what the Apostle Paul is saying in essence is that his character, his conscience, his person, his holiness has been tested against the blazing heat of the holiness of God, of the purity and truth of God, and he has passed the test. There is nothing against him. Now turn with me to chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians because there you find the Apostle Paul again describing his ministry in a way that was blameless, in a way that could not be decried or charged against. And you couldn't charge Paul with doing wrong. He was so incessant in the ministry. Such an example to me, such an example for you, especially men who desire future pastoral leadership positions. I'll tell you what. Look at the heart of the Apostle Paul because he was adamant. He was obsessed with ministerial excellence. He wasn't a lazy minister. He cared about his conduct. He cared about his reputation in the church. Look, look at chapter, three, or chapter 6, verse 3. After calling them and admonishing the account, he says, We give no cause for offense in anything. So that, and you know he's thinking along the lines of the ministry and his conduct, because he says, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Can you commend yourself as a servant of God? Can you commend yourself in that way as a representative of God, of somebody who can claim God as being the master and Lord of your life? And then Paul goes right into his conduct. 
He says in much endurance and afflictions and hardships, distresses. You see that? Look at verse 6. Impurity and knowledge, patience, kindness in the Holy Spirit and genuine love. Verse 7. In the truth, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness. He says in verse 8, by glory and dishonor. This is what he suffered in the ministry. By evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished and yet not, he says, and yet not put to death. Verse 10, sorrowful but yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. This is the tension of a man in biblical ministry. Paul's conscience had been tested and had been found blameless in the matters of which he was being accused of being fickle, of being uh, irresolute, of being a bad decision maker, all of these things. Because truly, in the ministry, those are detrimental. In the ministry, you cannot be a fickle, whimsical, double-minded minister. You cannot say yes and mean no. You cannot say no and mean yes. You can't be constantly going back on your word. You have to be a man of your word. You have to stick to your guns. You have to be resolved. You can't be indecisive. You can't be uh, double-minded. You can't constantly be doubting your wisdom. You can't constantly be in doubt of your own judgments. No, the ministry, my friends, moves way too too fast and moves way too too significantly. And and, uh, it calls for great decision-making. Studying a a leadership manual by Jay Adams, he talks about the fact that leadership, in order to become a good leader, you have to lead. (laughs) Think of that. In order to be a good decision maker, you got to make decisions. What he's trying to get at is you cannot be indecisive. There comes a time where you must act. After all the counsel and all the, 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 all the different things are taken into account, you got to act. And it demands great faith. And Paul was a great decision maker. Paul's decisions were made with the utmost integrity. He wanted to be motivated not by an indecisive spirit, but he wanted to be driven by the grace of God. Now look at the two, the next two sections here as he is told one of the charges being made leveled against him is negatively put to us when he says, not in fleshly wisdom, not in fleshly wisdom or the wisdom of the flesh, right? And then he says, but by the grace of God. Of God, setting those two things in antithesis. In other words, he's saying, look, the decision-making that I make is not sinful. It's not rooted in wisdom that is earthly or worldly or carnal. It is rather driven and motivated by the grace of God. There's a parallel passage, I think, if you look down to verse 17 here of 2 Corinthians 1, there's a parallel text that Paul uses. He says, Therefore, I was not vacillating. I was not, in other words, being indecisive or fickle when I intended to do this, was I? He says, or or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? So that with me there will be yes and yes and no and no at the same time? In other words, you can't trust anything Paul says because he might go back on it the very next moment. No, Paul says, no, I wasn't being fickle. But then he'll go on to explain even more of the reasons why he made the decisions that he made and why he made alterations to his travel plans the way that he did. But then he gives us another secret gem into true ministry. 
He says, not according to the sinful wisdom, not according to fleshly, worldly wisdom, he says, but by the grace of God. And I sat there pouring over that phrase last night thinking, by the grace of God, right? Why not wisdom again, right? Not carnal wisdom, but the wisdom of God. Not instead of fleshly wisdom, true wisdom, right? Why the grace of God? And then it struck me that it is the grace, it is owing to the grace of God for any good decision that will ever come out of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. In essence, he is giving credit where credit is due. It's beautiful. It's a little slight and subtle way to worship and to revel in the grace of God. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, whatever good comes out of my wisdom or my decision-making, it is in accordance with the grace of God, meaning it is given and granted to me freely by God. It is not my own doing. It completely takes Paul, if you would, out of the equation. My wisdom, to whatever degree I have it, doesn't originate in my own powers. It doesn't originate in my own ministerial tactics, but it is owing to the grace of God if it is any good whatsoever. And isn't that true of our own lives? It better be. Any advance that you make in your sanctification is always and will always be owing to nothing but the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, had God's grace not been the empowering modus operandi in your life, you would be left to yourself and you would result to ruin. A true, excellent ministry, therefore, is owing to the grace of God, nothing else. Now, let's look to the minister's conduct, not just his conscience, not just his character, but also his conduct. Let's see these qualities that reside in the Apostle Paul, in the person of Paul. Let's see these qualities now lived out, right? And he gives us two spheres where this conduct is lived out. The conduct is lived out in the world and in the church, we could say. Because, as he says right here, he says, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves where? In the world. And then he says, with the uh, added emphasis, especially toward you. That's an interesting phrase, right? So Paul was just as concerned at how he behaved in the world as he was in his behavior in the church. In other words, the way that you behave at work better mirror how you behave in the church, right? You can't be two-faced. You can't be at the job site with the guys cussing and getting involved in all the dirty jokes and then coming to the church and blah, 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 blah. I would never talk like that. You cannot be hypocritical. You cannot put on a mask. You're one person in the church, and you're another person in the world. The world knows you as somebody else. Oh, so-and-so, yeah, yeah, he works here. Oh, man, that guy tells some terrible jokes. His, his, his speech is as foul as the next construction worker. No, my friends, Paul wanted to keep, again, a good conscience. He was so burdened to make sure that he walked blameless before God and man, man in both spheres of in the church and in the world, and the reason why is because Paul wanted to produce joy. The Puritan Richard Sibbs says, we can't do anything well without joy. I love the Puritans for their gross generalizations, right? <laughs> for their massive overstatements, because there's so much truth in that. 
We can do nothing well without joy. And a good conscience is the ground of joy. That's beautiful. You want to have more joy in your life, in your ministry? I'll tell you what. Keeping a good conscience is the fertile ground out of which the seeds of joy spring into into beautiful, beautiful, beautiful things. It's just amazing. We need more joy in the church, right? Who wants to be around a joyless pastor? Who wants to be around a pastor that is cold and stale? Who wants to be around a pastor that has so many walls you can't get in? Who is this guy? Can I just talk to this man? I know I've been there. I've seen it. I probably have it myself. But no, I think that joy is so crucial in the ministry. Joy produces life, doesn't it? Joy produces joy. It's amazing to me when mean pastors tell their people to be filled with joy. (laughs) It's an oxymoron. No, and it should never be so, especially for us who are given to theology, especially for those men of God that love to study systematic theology, that love the exegesis of the Bible, that should produce even an even more indomitable joy in our soul. It, it should produce a contagious joy. I hope that my joy is contagious. I hope that I project joy up here. I hope that I cause you to delight in the Lord. I'd consider my ministry a large failure if I do not produce joy in our church. So he was adamant to conduct himself in a rightful way in the world. And let me just stay here for a second. You know, the Bible takes this very serious, our conduct in the world. Let me read to you a few texts of the theology of this, of how you uh, behave in what Scripture calls outsiders. I like that. We are in a We are in a secret fraternity, brothers and sisters. We are in a secret society as believers. And when outsiders come in, there is a proper conduct that we are to have with them. Peter tells the churches in 1 Peter 1.17, Conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And the reason why I zeroed in on that text is because I found it to be an incredible clue as to how you can walk circumspectly in this world. Not lackadaisically, not just going with the flow of culture, not just embracing everything the world embraces, not just allowing anything to funnel into your soul that funnels into the souls of the people in the world. But where do the governors come from? First and foremost, you are to conduct yourself with fear. Fear God, fear His judgment, fear His standards, fear His word, fear the repercussions of sin. Fear, brothers and sisters, because in this world there are many dangerous and detrimental pitfalls that you can fall into. Walk with fear. Walk circumspectly. Paul tells Timothy, that a minister must have a good reputation with those who are outside the church. You see that? 
In Colossians 4, verse 5, he says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Another clue as to how you can walk circumspectly in the world, as to how a minister and anyone can conduct themselves rightly in the world. How do you do it? Redeem the time. Walk in fear. Redeem the time. Walk in wisdom. 1 Thessalonians 4.12, he says, so that you will behave properly towards those outsiders and not be in any need. So there, again, the way that we are to conduct ourselves in the world is very, very important and it's very telling of our character. Secondly, the minister's conduct in the church. And one of the ways that Paul does this to stress the way he conducted himself in, this chur- in, in the churches is that he would often commend himself to their conscience right? Paul does this over and over and over. You know, you see, test my, you know, check your conscience, reflect, think about it, think upon how I've conducted myself, constantly reminding them of his conduct. 2 Corinthians 4, 2 says, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Isn't that amazing? 2 Corinthians 5.11, we're made manifest to God, and I hope that we will be manifest also in your consciences. Their conscience bore witness and testified to the moral excellence of Paul's ministry. To the Thessalonians, he set before them his example with all of the different ways that it commended Paul's uh, conduct and his character to their conscience. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that he did not conduct himself with impurity, that he was not driven by deceit. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 4, he said he spoke in a manner that was pleasing to God and not in a manner that was pleasing to man. In other words, he was not a man-pleaser in the church, Right? There are too many man-pleasers in the church, especially pastors, right? They're, they're, they're wanting to please the rich guy in the church, right? They're, they're, they're wanting to, to please the theologically elite in the church. They're wanting to please a certain family that they think is exemplary, and so everything should be ran through them. No, brothers and sisters, we seek to please God, not man. He says, therefore, we don't speak with flattering speech. We don't conduct ourselves with greed, verse 5. He also was not a tyrant. Too many tyrants in the church. I'm taking a lot of shots, at, I understand, at pastors and people in the church. But it's true. It's true. Man, if he doesn't follow the biblical pattern, can easily slip into this. He, Paul says he didn't come to lord over them with his apostolic authority. He wasn't a heavy-handed shepherd. But, but quite to the opposite, look at verse 7. He says he was as tender and gentle as a nursing mother, like a mother with her children, gentle, kind, caring, and loving. Some ministers care more about their professionalism than they do about their concern, their care, their nurture, their gentleness with the church. They care more to be looked at as a CEO or a president I like what Spurgeon said on this point. He said, how ridiculous the minister looks walking around his little kingdom like a little king. That's right. Ministry can go to your heads, brothers and sisters. It can. Ministry is a weighty thing. You have have great influence in people's lives. 
You can speak the very words of God into people's life. You can use this book as a great tool either to edify or to tear down. And it's a lot, a lot of responsibility comes with it. Finally, in verse 10 there, Paul says, You are my witness, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. And that's the point he's trying to make here. His conduct in the church, especially toward you, he said. Not that he was, again, not that he was a hypocrite in the world, don't take that especially towards you. doesn't mean I'm less integrous in the world. It just means because of the limitations of the world, not the limitations of Paul's integrity, the church stands to benefit more from Paul's character and Paul's integrity. Okay, that's the first point made up of many subpoints. I know. The second point is Paul's pastoral ambition in the ministry. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, for we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. Or another way you can translate that, that you will fully understand. He says, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud or to boast, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Again, Paul making reference to this severe letter that he had just written to the church. That is what they're reading, and in that is what they're understanding. Their report comes from Titus in chapter 7 of the fact that the church had received the, apparently the rebuke and the instruction with a good response. And therefore, Paul says, in some measure, partially, you did understand us. But his desire is for full understanding that they would totally understand him. In other words, he doesn't want there to be any misunderstandings. That's terrible, right? That's dreadful. That is detrimental in the ministry. If you're a minister that is constantly being misunderstood by the things that you say and by the things that you do, it could be your demise. You need to speak plainly. You need to speak with transparency. You need to speak cogently. You need to lead in a cogent way, and you cannot be dying the death of a thousand qualifications in the church. No, brethren, Paul's desire was that they would be on the same page, to be on the same. That is the great trick of ministry. Do you know that? To get the ministers and the sheep on the same page. That is the trick of ministry, because together you can do amazing things for the gospel. But when it is disjointed, when there's misunderstanding, when there is not a transparency and a connection between church and member, or between pastor and member, it is quite debilitating. It affects your progress. It affects the advance of the gospel. And so Paul's overarching passion in ministry was that he would always be on the same page with the churches, with the churches. He had legitimate concerns, and there were legitimate circumstances that kept him from sticking to his original plans that he had made, and apparently in the letter that he wrote them, there were some alterations to those plans, and now they're interpreting that to mean Paul is not trustworthy, Paul is fickle, Paul is indecisive. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, because he makes it clear that uh, his desire was motivated out of joy again motivated out of concern for the church. 
And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. He didn't want to come to them. That's one of the reasons he changed his itinerary. He didn't want to come again in a sorrowful situation, in a disciplinary situation. He says, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? He says, this is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of all of you. He wanted to come after things were made right. Paul's point then is to clarify that they understand Him, that He be not misunderstood. But then this kind of leads us to, or at least it led Paul in his thinking, it led him to a deeper, greater ambition that is so powerful once again for a good biblical ministry. And that is this, an eschatological ambition. Paul had in his mind in the ministry not just the stuff that went on in the church. You know that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is not an end of itself. Do you know there's more to church than the course of our lives after John MacArthur is done preaching, after his 50, 60, 70, I can't keep count anymore how long the man's been expositing the Word of God. But I tell you what, we shouldn't talk about John MacArthur being finished with his church after that. But as Jonathan Edwards reminds us when he reminded his Northampton church when after they voted to remove him, he said this removal is just a temporary moment until we meet again at the great judgment seat. Paul, like Edwards, or Edwards like Paul, saw that there was an eschatological accountability between pastor and his sheep. And you can see that right there at the very end when he says, in the day of our Lord Jesus, when everything would be made plain, when Paul would be vindicated ultimately for all the things he was falsely accused of, when we will see what manner of person George Whitfield really was, when we will see where every, every pastor, every minister, every church will have to give an account for their relationship, for their faithfulness, not just pastor to the sheep, but sheep to the pastors. It's incredible, right? This is strong, this is strong ammunition for church membership, right? that we've got to take our membership serious in the church because we're going to give an account of how you were or were not a member of a church. You're going to give an account as to how you served and how you executed all of the one another's of Scripture. And likewise, I will give an account as to how I ministered and I shepherded and how I dealt with God's church and how I conducted myself in the world and in the church. There's a great, massive accountability. And I love Paul's heart here. He loves the purity of the church. He wants this confidence. He wants to be able to one day boast on behalf of his church. He wants to arrive at the final day and be able to look over at the congregation in Corinth and say, Lord, behold your bride, spotless, free from blemish, a holy, chaste virgin. He had done his work. They had received his instruction, and they were walking in holiness. It, I believe it killed the Apostle Paul to have this estrangement between the church and he. And he was constantly reminding them of the same thing, 
that he did not want this estrangement. He didn't want this separation. He didn't want this awkwardness to exist. You can see that because he wasn't just talking about how the church functioned, how we related to one another in formalities, right? Pastor, how are you? You know, brother, sister, how are you doing? Great. But what about below the surface, man? Is there bitterness? Oh, the church is full of this, right? Just unwilling to just speak of that unspoken elephant in the room, that problem, that nagging issue that's always been there that you've just never had the courage to bring up or talk about or be transparent about. Paul wanted transparency in his people. Listen to what he says right here in this epistle. 2 Corinthians 6.11, he says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you. That's not easy to do, you know that? That's not easy to do in the ministry, to speak freely to the church without being intimidated or without being facetious or without being pretentious. He spoke freely to them, genuinely to them. He says, our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. He, he cared about their affections, their heart. Now, in like exchange, I speak to you as children, open wide to us also. Isn't that amazing? Be real. Hey, I'll be real with you. You be real with me. Let's have a real church, not a fake church with all these plastic people whose Christianity can just blow over with the wind. No, brothers and sisters, let's be genuine and real. Genuine and real. He says later in chapter 7, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. He says, make room for us in your hearts. Isn't that beautiful? In chapter 7, he says, great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all the afflictions or in all our afflictions. Paul did not allow the suffering and the things that he went through in his ministry to diminish his joy in the ministry. That's just an amazing example to me. No matter what's going on in the church, no matter what trial or tribulation or trouble or controversy or whatever is going on in the church, it did not allow the embers of joy to be diminished, to be snuffed out. For Paul, it was all important that the joy of the Lord should characterize his ministry. And brothers and sisters, I can just exhort us, I can just implore us to do the same thing. Let's be a genuine church. Let's pray about the things that are really on our hearts in that prayer meeting. Let's pray. Let's talk to one another what's really going on in our lives. Let's get in our small group and not be afraid to just say, hey, I don't understand what that verse means. It's okay, brothers and sisters. No one's going to judge you. We're not going to pounce on you. No one's going to judge you because you're not theologically as, you know, astute as the next person. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's never create an atmosphere or a culture in our church like that. Let's never be a looking down your nose kind of church. No, brothers and sisters, let us not forget who we are. Just like Paul says, it's not for the grace of God we could claim no success in our own life. Therefore, let us pity one another. Let us love one another genuinely and affectionately for the glory of Christ, for the sake of His name, and 
in the reality that one day, in the day of Christ, when Christ returns, when Christ, when the, as Peter says, when the great shepherd appears, knowing that we will give an account, not only for, minister, for the minister, but also for the member. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, I know that with these sermons, I'm laying a groundwork for future joy in our church, for future stability and growth and strength, so that we can look back to these passages of Scripture and reflect upon the truths that are contained here so that when we stray and when we become stale and fake and plastic, we can come back and see what is your will, what is your heart, God? What is, what, what is the word of the Lord to us in a season like that but to be open wide to one another Father, to be truly affectionate, to have genuine concern, genuine care for one another, for the sheep, for the brethren. God, please forbid that our church would ever become anything like what Paul feared. Forbid, Father, that, Lord, anybody in this church would be living with a smitten conscience, would not be uh, keeping short accounts with God, would not be doing business with God, but Father, please do not allow our conscience to be our greatest accuser. Oh, Father, we need our advocate. We need our blessed, righteous advocate, Jesus. Because, Lord, apart from His cleansing power, apart from the power of the blood of His cross, we are smitten all the day long. Lord, we need Your cleansing power We need your forgiveness. We need your strength. We need your life in us. We need the operations of your spirit to be lively, vibrant in our soul, in our lives. We need to fall under conviction, and we need to obey. Father, who is sufficient for these things? We plead with you, God. Strengthen us, Lord, to know the Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.